If you are watching this on YouTube or listening to this podcast, wherever you are today, please hit that subscribe button, that follow button, so that you can stay current on the material that we are providing. But not only that, you then help us to spread the word to more people. You are vital in this mission to reaching our world of people just like you who are living in this nightmare. Welcome to the Covert Narcissism Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Swanson. So um, in my heart and in my um, soul level, I had to do what I just did not want to do. And I was just so reluctant. And um, I started telling friends a little bit. And one of them told me about this option of order protection. Um, and I um, and I wrote that up. And I will tell you, that was healing um, to write it all down in a, in a summary. Um, and I went by myself to the court on a Monday. And this is the other thing I prayed about. What day is a good day? <laughs> what day is the right day to go in there? Like, there's no good day. There's no do. good day. No. And like, how do you know it's a good day? Like, how do you know? But in this case, my two younger sons were um, out of town at a at a camp. So, um, for, related to school. So, I knew they were going to be gone for a couple of days. So, I was trying to avoid any drama or whatever was going to happen. So um, that was my motivation. It wasn't anything brilliant except that they were safe. Now my daughter was at home, but um, you know, we were okay. So I, I went in and represented myself. I didn't even know you needed an attorney really for that. Or it didn't occur to me. Mm-hmm. And well, um, and it, I sat hours in the hallway with my heart pounding, um, staying in the rosary, kind of at the meditation, not out of religious nature as much as it was to calm myself down because I didn't know what else to do. And you can't have anything in the hallway, you can't have all your, um, you know, devices. Mm-hmm. And I was out there hours and I went into the judge and um, she and I want to say this was the most validating point. So she read, I was still married, by the way, this was just an order of protection while I was still married. I didn't file for divorce. And she walked in and, she, and I had, I could only turn in two pages. And so I had in my hand, three more pages of a narrative, documented dates, incidences, and, and how it made me feel. And she said, I, I read over your information and she said, um, um, and my heart was pounding. And she said, I just want you, she said, why? She said, um, this man needs a serious timeout. That's how she said it. And um, and she looked at me and she said, why did you stay? <laughs> why are you staying in this? She said, this is one of the worst cases I've heard. And I, I said, I, I just, I don't know. I didn't, I said, I stayed for the kids. And then she said, why are you here? And I said, for the kids. <laughs> so I'm not laughing, except like that was my, like my simple answer. I stayed for the kids. But then at some point, I decided it was in the kids' best interest that over my dead body, was I going to raise kids to see that, that any part of that was okay? Mm-hmm. And I will sacrifice my whole life. I will drink tea in a tent <laughs> before I will sleep knowing that I put four littles out into this world in any capacity with that kind of behavior being acceptable on any level. Mm-hmm. So um, so I kind of took it as like a life-saving divorce or a life-saving action for the children. And and she was phenomenal. She like, she included, I had just put it for myself. She included the kids. 
she, it was all very short. Um, and, uh, she just said, I, I, you know, she just gave him six, it was a six weeks. Well, it's two weeks and then nothing happened. So she started it to six weeks or whatever. And then, um, and it was no contact. Of course, it was a, a police enforced order protection. And I came home. Um, and anyway, without going into too much detail, that was the biggest relief. I, I cried for maybe four or five hours. And I just want to give your listeners to know that there's legal options and um, if it gets that bad and to pursue talking with a a domestic violence shelter and trained people who know about those things. Mm -hmm. I went to another town because I was so ashamed about my own town. So I took this out of a shelter in another town who helped me. So um, anyway. I filed for divorce just a few days after, um, and then he, of course, came back with guns blazing and reverse abuse and um, charges. And I was horrified that that was that was even a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so he, uh, so then I had to get an attorney. Um, I should add um, that attorney. I I got a secret extra job <laughs> three years prior. I strategize. I just could not figure out a way out with with keeping everything intact, my home, my family, my dignity with this, what I was up against. And I, I didn't know what the future held, but I knew it was going to be hell. Um, so um, I had, because he was controlled all the money, I didn't, you would have thought it was 1940. I took an extra little job. I put all my paychecks into, I cashed them and put them in a safety deposit box wow. in a separate, in a, with mm-hmm. my, with my maiden name, not super stealth, but it made me feel better. And if there's something that I used to say to myself, what do you need to do to make you feel safer or more empowered? And if just the act of have, of course, I never thought I could have enough cash <laughs> to go through what I needed to get through. But at first it was like, okay, get $500 to to, for a for an attorney fee, a down payment. So, like in my mind, as I was strategizing and preparing, um, I was real happy that I did that. It wasn't about the amount of money; it was the it, those are small, empowering moves to take control of my money and of my decision making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's uh, a very it, powerful point. And I want to kind of drive that one home a little bit. Is even the baby steps that give you some empowerment move you in a positive direction. They give you the power then that you need to basically to take control back of your life. Then whatever your future looks like is what it looks like, but it gives you some power back in your hands. Yes. And the, the bank was actually the bank teller women and were very compassionate. Um because I didn't, you know, I used I opened up a PO box. Um and I um, used my own, just my maiden name, which is not a huge secret. But um, I explained to them a little bit about why I was doing it because I was also exploited. Um, you know, I just didn't have control of my own money. So that's another thing. So I just want to point out by saying those, the bank tellers, like lots of little bits of, I didn't tell them the whole story, but like just that knowing look. I just want to point these out because this is what helped me get through all those things were just um, uh, feelings that I was doing the right thing 
or that I was seen without words. Um, and they were for me. So okay, where I was a routine customer because I every two weeks I came in, did my thing, and they were all like happy to help, like get the cash, go get the key, open the pot. Like, and I became, I hate to say friends because we were never friends. I don't even know their last names, but I want to say that, and this is how I viewed it. Love comes in many, um, it's not just your spouse or whatever, or your person that you had children with. Feeling loved is from the many, the many, many people out there in those little tiny ways. So, um, and that's the little, the little helping hands that yes. helps you along the way. Yeah. And I call it love because I didn't call it love then, but um, that's crucial to mm-hmm. the journey is um, I, oh, I should, I wanted to say those in that time, um, everybody vacated from my life. So I didn't know my husband um, at the time had done this smear campaign for years and my family would not speak to me. They thought I was doing a grave injustice to the children. Um, they thought I was off my, that I was having some sort of nervous breakdown or mental lapse or something, even though, by the way, I was doing all the work and going to work and making money and doing all this stuff. He had put these thoughts into their head that I was having issues. Mm-hmm. His family, of course, who I thought I was close to, of course, wouldn't talk to me. I didn't know that when I divorced one person or filed for divorce, that like in my instance, about 45 people fell out of my life. Wow. My their spouses, his siblings, my nieces and nephews, because, you know, as collateral, <laughs> no, no offense to them personally, but, and I remember rocking on the chair, and I think this is just important. I put the kids to bed. I rocked in my chair. I kept, I would not say his name in my home after the order protection. And my focus was on the word protection, not fighting, not pursuing but just standing strong, stoic, like, how can I protect myself and my kids? And, and I mean this psychologically, emotionally, and physically. Of course, that started physically, you have to feel safe. But the, some of the psychological protections was to not say his name. Like, that was a protection. The no contact was a protection. So I was rocking in the chair, and I'd cry for like an hour before I went to bed. Like, I felt so, and I think this is what I want to say, I felt so empty. And I think a lot of people... I was happy to be alone. So I thought, why do I feel so vacated? Like I felt like, like I was like invasion of the body snatchers. Like I didn't know, I had no, nothing to grasp onto, like no sense of self or identity or I was like in a fog. And like, I didn't even know who I was. I was just going through the motions of life. And, and thank goodness I had those motions. I want to say that was a healing thing, but so I'd rock and I thought, oh my God, I didn't know I was going to, I didn't plan this. I didn't know I was going to lose, that my life was just going to like, it was almost like it, it was like a death or a vacating. Hmm. I was rocking night. It was my routine. I'd do my pity party, <laughs> rock in my rock, like in a chair and get up and go to bed because I still had to go to work in the morning. And one night when I was rocking and I, I call it prayer, but it was definitely not the prayer. It was more like complaining, crying yelling to nobody (laughs) or maybe you could say god but to me i was just kind of expressing myself 
to maybe if there was a God, <laughs> then hopefully someone was listening to me that I could not see. But I wasn't really the intent of prayer. It was more like very angry. Like, mm-hmm. how did this happen? What's going on? What do I do next? What what the hell is going on here? Like, who am I? And what universe is this? And why did I do this? And blah, blah, blah. And then I was asking lots of questions. And then one night I just like heard this voice and he there's a voice in my head, which it said, what, can't you see I did this for you? I was like, what do you mean this is for me? This feels so against me. He, and the voice was like, I did what you couldn't do. And I was like, what? what does that mean? Like, what? Like, how can this vast emptiness of blip, uh, an abyss of a black hole of, of my soul before me? Like, it like really but my curiosity was like <laughs> like what does that mean like and that was not my voice like that if i thought that i wouldn't be in this position mm-hmm. and so i think what the these what i call this a shift of people would say like life coaches say it's a thinking shift but i think of it as a spiritual shift um because i started thinking how is this for me and so i started thinking like oh like that he's absolutely right i was such a i was running over Bunning over backwards, trying to make everybody happy, including my niece. You know, I was trying to be the aunt and the and the sister-in-law. I was playing all my roles. In this way, he took, he wiped my slate clean mm. and let me uh, heal in the emptiness. And I started to see that as a gift rather than a punishment. <laughs> Good. And I started to see, like, oh. This is new feeling, like it wasn't taken up with all X's words and all of his behavior and all my dodging and the, what you call the walking on eggshells, or I might say uh, punching. Um, I think you said it. Somebody said like dodging uh, dodgeball or whatever. Like and I didn't even know how to handle this new experience of just being um, in nothingness, but I saw it as a gift of. It's my choice of what I want to fill it up with. And so um, little by little by little, I was like, okay, okay, I choose to drink a glass of water every morning, a tall glass of water in the morning for my physical health. And then um, I was making these tiny choices. One of my girlfriends um, brought over a candle that smelled like sugar cookies. Of course, I didn't bake. I could barely get through the day. but that gift of making my house smell good, I was like, oh, great idea. I'll light the candle. Like I had to start for all over again. Now, the mom of me always kind of did that and flitted around and did that. But I had sunken into such a deep abyss of how do I claw back out of this abyss? So it was those little tiny things. And then, um, um, and then of course, my uh, girlfriend's humor. <laughs> and there, luckily, I had a couple of good friends that were with me on the journey who I was friends with prior to, you know, pretty much the whole marriage and the whole thing. And they took my side and could listen to my endless talking. So uh, those little steps. And the other one was like made covenants with myself, which would be like, never be late to work. I don't care what kind of crappy morning you had. But like my work ethic, and that was more to sustain my like a little bit of money that I was getting in, which was not, it was poverty level money, but um, which brings me to another thing. But I was like, okay, I can't lose the little bit that I have. So I was just like, made it a point to never be late. 
Mm-hmm. So I made like a no excuse policy for myself, um, which helped me keep on track, like, you know, um, or, or at least compartmentalize it. Um, and then uh, I was waiting for child support <laughs> to be ordered. <laughs> and I was pulling out my cash stash, tiny bits to pay groceries. And uh and the child support never came, um, and uh, the order never came because, of course, he could control his income, and he was reducing it to to match, you know, dramatically down by six figures. It dropped suddenly, wow. um, and and why the court could not see some of these antics, I I don't know, but it was not in there. I knew we would go to a judge. I knew mediation would fail, so I was already anticipating trial because if we could have worked it out, we would have. So I knew that. This was all on the horizon, that my future would be determined by a third party. Um, and that, again, was a horrifying experience, I call it, which now has been determined as post-separation abuse. It was very real, very included in the court system. And he, uh, he looked fantastic, and I looked like a wreck. Um, of course, he's theatrical. Of course, he's probably getting his supply on this. And he did theatrics, like he would hold on to his wedding ring while he was testifying. You know, he did a lot of theatrics. So my experience with the the court system was that now, instead of my hand, my life was in my soon to be ex's hands. They were now in the hands of an anonymous, another anonymous male. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, I was just like, and I was under. Uh, I felt like very under scrutiny to um, always have groceries in the house and maintain um may have it clean like the standards became even uh, extraordinary because of all the accusations that were uh being uh, held against me um so the intensity of the physical things that i had to do increased and the fear of my children being taken away increased um so and then it and then um I was not getting child support, and one of my friends, uh, distant, not a friend, but like a person, called me and asked me, "What? How are you doing financially?" And I said, well, "I keep waiting." She said, "I think you would probably qualify." She was a caseworker, a public aid caseworker, and she reached out to me. She said, "I have a feeling you might qualify for uh, to go on public aid," and uh, I'm like, "Really? You know, I'm college educated. I." Uh, that's kind of humiliating for me. I'm very independent and smart, and but I didn't know the I didn't know the limits. And I had three minors at the time at this time at this time of this phone call. And lo and behold, it was on the poverty level. And it was based on your income, and um, and I did end up going on public aid. Um, and I want to say that because it turned into be a blessing. But I'll I'll, I'll tell you that. So I. But that was another like a step backwards. It's like, you got to be kidding me. I didn't expect this. When you go to, I didn't expect it to be a smooth sailing, but I also didn't expect the um, the slowness of the court system and the, um, you cannot control it and the attitudes. And there's still a prevalence of, um, you know, what you, what we try to fight against is, is rampant in the court. Like I had to have witnesses and, and he had, of course, like 50 witnesses. And the judge said to me, where's your witness list? And I said, oh, what do you mean a witness list? This is not criminal court. I'm just asking for a divorce. But they're treating it like a criminal case. I said, a witness to what? Like, 
no, there were no witnesses in our home, in our bedroom at two o'clock in the morning. There's no witnesses for that. Oh, well, the judge was like outraged that I, for some reason, said that. Like, you have to have witnesses. You're supposed to have witnesses. What's wrong with you that you don't have any witnesses? I said, well, you tell me when I need a witness and I will find, I'll have 500 people show up to this. If you want bodies, I'll have my 500 Facebook friends and have them come to court that day. What do you want from that? Mm-hmm. But the, and he, it's not all that, all that conversation. It's just that I didn't put that witness. In. But there was a, such a disconnect between the judge and myself. And of course, he looked at me like I was in contempt. But there's no logic behind a divorce in trial. Just so that makes sense. Like, because mm-hmm. you're going to, of course, with a covert narcissism, of course, he can have all these witnesses of what? Of character witnesses? I have them too. That That's a, that makes the, the argument null. Does that make sense? Like, yes. <laughs> I didn't see the role of that, yeah. but that was a problem in the courts. Um, and so I went on uh, one year later um, when I was going to go out and celebrate my one year of Independence Day, which is the day I filed. Um, I ended up driving myself to the ER with extreme pain and was uh, diagnosed in the ER, but with another, what I call an angel intervention, because I always downplayed my pain. <laughs> And this lovely ER nurse um, could see past my stoicism and luckily ordered the right test and was found out that I had um, a tumor in my colon and my bowels were about to burst. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to point out again, this was, I call it an angel in disguise or in a loving act, could see past my light of my pain scale so I could get back to my kids. and order a CAT scan, which diagnosed a tumor in my colon. And um, and I was ta- taken into um, that evening by ambulance to, because this was a, it was like a standalone site um, to another place where they ended up calling in a surgical team to um, remove my large colon that night. Wow. So I never, so mind you, my kids are at home. <laughs> I never told anybody. So um and I was like in a state of shock, another state of shock. So I just like, just when you think things can't get worse. So I just want any fears that a person has in um, filing, all those, those fears can come true. But I think what the message I want to get at this point is that, first of all, I felt there was nothing as, honestly, it wasn't as bad as living with that person. And there was nothing that I couldn't figure out and strategize about or overcome as long as I was still alive. So I want, if you have fears about money, which is a bit was my big one or uh, safety or th- like, or that you're going to get sick and no one's going to be there to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, losing you know, all your 45 friends and family. Right, right. So all those deep seated fears came true for me. And the, but if you, um, you just got to hang on to your sense of self, your, uh, your lifelines and, and the little bits of things that you could do. I mean, I was, um, again, it was a knee breaking moment, but what I want to fast forward to some of these, because healing, this was at the same time. So I was going through cancer the same time I was going through a, a six year divorce trial. Um, and I was just 
advised at the time. Um, I was still in my my little job, and um, I applied for about 50, 60 jobs, or you know, with benefits. I um, also applied for disability because I qualified for it. So I was kind of taking all my avenues and seeing which one would come to the forefront. And um, about two weeks before I went on to disability, I um, got a job offer. Now, mind you, I'm <laughs> for a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And um, I was 50 years old. I had not worked full-time in 20 years. I, I'm happy to say that it was a privilege to stay home and watch the kids. But I want also to encourage that I just took it, even though my attorney said not to take it, because it would it made my financial situation, you know, that I would have more money. And, and one of the strategies was to keep me, uh, you know, down, like look bad on paper or whatever. So as the trial went on, but I just, in my own heart, couldn't um, bypass the opportunity that um, for work. So I want to tell, so I was 50 years old getting my first full-time job. Um, and it was a low-level job for, honestly, what I was making, $4 an hour more than what I was on um that put me over the threshold of poverty standard state standards of poverty so it's very small and um and of course it would mean that i would be away from my kids now i will tell you they were at that age um old enough to uh 10 12 and 16 Mm -hmm. i mean i i winged it (laughs) um they were littles you know like what i would call baby infants so um and I made that against the advice of my attorney at the time. And I just took it without thinking through too much because I was like, whatever. I, I felt like it was a gift that I had to pursue. I could always quit if I wanted to. Just like I was like, oh, well, I don't have to do it. So you got to take those opportunities and just, and it was against my will. I didn't want, I didn't want to. How many people want to do that really? But I knew it was in my best interest. And I felt like when these things come, you have to give them the benefit of a doubt that it's for you and it's not. So I started changing the way I viewed work. Like work was an honor and a privilege to go to work and to make a contribution to society rather than um, a punishment of my ex withholding money, which so mm-hmm. I switched my mind into um, that. This is for my own dignity and not, about X. So I had to like, I had to do these major flips in my head on how to, to, so my constant theme was like, how can this be for you? Mm -hmm. You were looking for the opportunities and hope now, instead of just trying to avoid the punishment and pain. Yes. Mm -hmm. So where I am now, um, I will tell you, oh, and I just wanted to like, even my, um, doctor so the doctors had to be called in and the surgeon of course i didn't know anyone and they didn't have my history and i was late and i said to this doctor from another country i didn't really understand what he was saying i was in a lot of pain and i said i gotta change my healthcare power of attorney and he's like no 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 we need to get you into surgery i said no i said we got it i i can't have my he was even though we were had an order of protection and we were um living in two locations, he was still legally my husband. So this brought in another layer of fear for me mm-hmm. in the healthcare system. So we're in the court system now, I'm in the healthcare institution. And um, I just want to say that he, I said, no, I said, I can't go under until I change my healthcare power of attorney to my 
girlfriend versus my husband. And I, I said, I want no visitors. Like, I don't want any visitors coming to the hospital to like, you know. Um, so I will tell you in that split second, he made the decision to call. He called in off duty, a social worker from the hospital. And she came to my bedside before the anesthesiologist was there. I'm sure all the doctors were uh, pissed if I can say that word because of um, because of the surgeon making this lead decision to let me change my and I'm they didn't understand they didn't know why but it to me it was a grace moment that as soon as she she came in everybody did as they were ordered I signed over my two friends gave them their information um, as the person to give my healthcare information to mm-hmm. and took one off they were all present and heard it and as soon as I did that I think I passed out. I don't even think I got the needle in yet. <laughs> so relief of knowing that and hang, I think that hanging on to that pain, but it was the psychological release of control over my body and decisions that allowed me to finally succumb to rest so they can do the work they needed to do. Mm-hmm. But I had to have that psychological release first. And luckily this, this man physician uh surgeon who are was um gave me that gift mm-hmm. and i later um thanked him for it and what because i wanted to do that for other patients you know i'm sure like, oh. and i felt like it was a male who advocated for me on you know on public aid a single mom just like i'm sure it was a pathetic Page. Right, right. And he didn't know that. And I just, and it was a male too. And I thought, oh my goodness, and a male from another culture. So I just want you to know that like those things were so um, affirming to me. And I couldn't have been more thankful that he, he made that decision. And I, and we later, I, he became an advocate for me. Does that make sense? An advocate for my health. It does. So, Marie, to to wrap up kind of where we are today for this series that I'm doing, for those people out there listening who are, you know, at that point of desperation, confusion, emptiness, they're on their knees on the floor, not knowing where to turn, what is your story of hope for them? What is your word of advice for them right there in that moment to say, look, if you can hang on to one thing, hang on to this? And I think for me, it was practicing self-compassion is the is the big term. It was to just, and you know, people talk about loving themselves, but seeing, it, you know, I kept having to say to myself, you have a right to be here. You, I guess, did mantras like you have your place. You're your kid's only mom. They'll never have another mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would constantly say things to myself that, um, you have it in you to 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 overcome this. You ha- God gave you the beautiful things that were exploited in these relationships are the very things that get you through it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the the mystery or the message that what was used to harm you, your 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 uh, patience, <laughs> mm-hmm. your uh, so that was something I needed to draw on <laughs> through the mm-hmm. course your ability to love your children so um, deeply and love them. I had to turn that in me, into me. You are a loving person and and you can show that to yourself. Mm -hmm. Be kind, go to bed early, sleep, take a bath, you know, give yourself, go on a walk, listen to the 
that music. I, I mean, I listen to very inspiring music. Um, you know, just uh, the the piano guys has this beautiful song, um, which is combines Rachel Platten's fight song with the Amazing Grace, and it became like my my fight song. Like, so I'd walk and I'd listen. You know, fill my heart up with music. Fill that abyss and that emptiness with choose you choose this is your opportunity to choose what you want to bring into your soul and into your mind then the other thing is just i kind of had to force myself to go through the motions um and be robotic don't overthink just get up and go and don't and just separate into two different people (laughs) and compartmentalize my life one and and that in front of the other and it sounds a little bit like a disassociation, and I'm actually trying to integrate it more. But at the time, it was a healing strategy. So, you know, to be able to survive by separating my emotions and my actions and my behavior into different compartments to get through those different parts. Right. Uh, right. So, um, Marie, thank you so much for sharing this. Your words, your story is very touching. I think our audience here will resonate with a, with your story and these words of hope and, and what is there in front of you uh, in regards to, number one, taking care of yourself because you do matter. You out there that are listening to this, every single individual out there, you do matter in this world and and you need to take charge of that and and the other piece of that being going through the motions is a really good it's a survival tactic it's like that disassociation like you're talking about but it allows you to just put one foot in front of the other um if all you can do today is breathe then that is what you do and and that is progress so so marie thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story with us i um i've really been touched by the story you have shared i appreciate it and uh, the opportunity and all the work that you do i especially appreciate your narcissistic prayer i wanted to throw that in there <laughs> i just listened to that on repeat yeah it makes it adds a little bit of a touch to humor uh, in in a very dark space It does. Sometimes humor is necessary. So everyone out there, I wish you so much peace on your journey of healing. You have been listening to the Covert Narcissism Podcast with your host, Renee Swanson. Be sure to check out our website at www.covertnarcissism.com. There you will find many resources just for you to help you on this journey. You can also reach out to me by email at Renee, R-E-N-E-E, at cnglifecoaching.com. Those letters are C-N-G, as in Covert Narcissism Group. I do look forward to hearing from you. I wish you so much peace on your journey of healing. The information provided by Renee Swanson and the Covert Narcissism Podcast is for educational purposes only and is not to be used for diagnosis purposes and not intended to be a substitute for clinical care. Please consult a healthcare provider for guidance specific to your case. This material discusses narcissism in general. It does not claim that any specific person has narcissism and should not be used to refer to any specific person as having narcissism. Permission is not granted to link to or repost this material to support an allegation or a claim that any specific person is a narcissist. That would be an unauthorized misuse of the material and information provided.